Amen. I'd like to thank Brother Leland for filling in for me. He's not here, so I can give any review I want of his class. I did listen to it on the podcast, so I know he did cover my three points. Um, But before we begin today in 1 Samuel chapter 30, we're going to talk about what we talked about last week because it sets up the scene for this evening, right? So in chapter 28, we have David. He flees and goes to uh, the land of Philistines. He goes to Ziklag is, is the city he's given. And he sets up camp and house there, right? He lives there for 16 months. And then in chapter 29, we have kind of a, in a, you know, a continuation, right? We move on from there. And what we have, we have the Philistines are lining up in battle against Saul. And Saul is afraid. And so Saul goes to this medium because the Lord isn't answering his inquiries and, and has her bring up Samuel, right? And we saw that there. In chapter, 20, uh, chapter 29, we then are back with the Philistines, and Achish, king of the Philistines, wants David to go into the battle with them, right? You will be my bodyguard, you and your men. But the lords of the Philistines have a different idea. What do they think? That's crazy, <laughs> right? We don't want to do that. This guy's been killing all of our people, and you bring him into our land, and we're going to go fight his home countrymen. I, we don't want him behind us, Right? And so they, they say, no, we're not going to go with that, so you need to send him home. And so Achish sends David back home. And you think about that. We know what's going to happen in this battle. We know how it's going to end, right? The Philistines are going to fight against the Israelites, and who's going to win? The Philistines are going to win, right? Who's going to be slaughtered? The Israelites, including Saul and his sons, right? All of them. So you think about that. David is not a part of this battle at all. Totally removed from it. And in chapter 30, we're going to see what David goes through in the meantime. But David is not in this battle at all. And when you think about that, I think part of that is is providential, right? Because... This is the moment when Saul and his sons are going to be removed, right? Saul, not all of his sons, we'll talk about that, but Saul and some of his sons are removed at this point, right? And if David was in that fight, what would that have been like, right? Because would David have fought for the Philistines? Well, I don't, I don't think so, right? I don't think so. Would David have defended the king? I believe so. He was given multiple opportunities to kill Saul on his own, and he would not do that, right? He would not lift his hand against God's anointed. And so, yeah, so David being removed from this battle kind of removes him from that situation, right? Removes him from what could happen there. And I I think in a way that, that does seem to be providential in this case. But what does David go through instead? Beginning in chapter 30... Uh, you know, with our first question here, the, what does David find when he comes home? He, he leaves. He's not going to be a part of this battle, so he's sent back home. It takes him three days to get back. When he arrives back home at Ziklag, how do things look? Not good, right? The city's on fire. Uh, everybody's gone. All of their things are gone. And it doesn't look good. Right? So you have, it happens, David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day. The Amalekites made a raid on the Negev and on Ziklag and had overthrown Ziklag and burned it with fire. They took captive the women and all who were in, in it, both great and small, without killing anyone and carried them off and went their way. 
Amalek. Okay, we've, we've interacted with Amalek before, right? This is not supposed to have been a problem, right? Why? Saul was supposed to utterly destroy Amalek. He didn't do it, right? Um, and so, okay, Amalek's still here. Amalek's still a problem. Amalek comes and raids Ziklag when David is gone. And how did David and his men react to this? Probably the same way you would, right? You come home and your home's on fire and all of your stuff's been taken and all of your family's been taken. You probably wouldn't sit there and go, woo, let's roast marshmallows. Um, they're, they're weeping, right? In fact, it says they lifted their voices in verse 4 and wept until there was no strength in them to weep. Right? Everything you own, everything you love, everything you care about has been taken away. And not just taken away, but your home has been burned. Right? That would be distressing. That would be cause for weeping. You know, you think about David and all he's gone through at this point, running away from Saul and fleeing and being on the run all the time. He comes to the land of the Philistines and he establishes a home, as it were, for 16 months, right? A place he can return to, a place he can come back and be with his family, a place where he can rest that isn't a cave, right? Um, but that's taken away here. And that may be intentional because Ziklag's part of Philistia, right? It's part of the Philistine nation. He's not really home. He's away from home, right? He, he should be with his people. But this home is burned and everything's destroyed. How do the men react after weeping and, and running out of strength? Are they, you know, it's okay. We still have David, our leader. It's all going to be great. Yeah, it's all David's fault. You know, what are we going to do? Well, we can't get our stuff back. We'll kill David, right? We'll stone him. For, as punishment for this, right? That would, be, that would be a little stressful, I would think, right? As David, uh, being a leader, you had, you know, these men come to you and uh, they joined your group. You were, you know, you're kind of the underdog anyway in Israel. These men come and attach themselves to you. And, and so far, good things have happened from that, right? You've done well, you've done good for the children of Israel against the Lord's enemies, and you know things have gone well, but now the tables turn, right? One bad incident, and they're ready to stone you. A lot of people's reactions to that would be, what? Run away, right? Run away, uh, beg for your life. Um, you know, what does David do, though? Strengthens himself in the Lord, turns to the Lord. I find it interesting this, this chapter, this section here, right before the destruction of Saul, because you find out the reason why Saul is being destroyed. And it kind of ties in really well with Saul and the Amalekites, right? What is Saul's reasoning for why he didn't destroy the Amalekites? The, what did the people do, right? Well, the people told, you know, the people convinced me that, no, we need to keep all this stuff. We need to do all these things, right? No, the people influenced me, and, and I went to the side of them instead of following the word of the Lord, right? What does David do in this terrible, horrible, distressful situation? He turns to the Lord, strengthens himself in the Lord. And not only that, but I find it interesting that 
He doesn't just immediately say, oh, you know what? Let's run down the Amalekites and we'll take them, right? That, I mean, that would be what I would think he would do, right? David, he's, he's a man of action. He gets things done. And so, you know, I would think you come back, you find your city burned. You know it's the Amalekites. Okay, let's go hunt them down. But David doesn't do that. What does he do first? He strengthens himself in the Lord. And then he inquires of the Lord, right? He asks Abiathar, the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. So he does. And David inquires of the Lord, asking, shall I pursue this band? Shall I overtake them? That indicates to me that he believes the Lord's opinion on this is important, right? The Lord's will in this is important. Why would you ask the question? If you don't care the answer, you know, well, some people do that anyway, just for pretense, right? Just to put on a show. But right here, his men want to kill him. And his response is, I strengthen myself in the Lord and I ask the Lord what he wants me to do. That shows a difference in character of David that we don't see in Saul and haven't seen in Saul up to this point. Yes, Brother David. Let me contrast this moment with his reaction to Abigail's husband. You know, where it's very reactionary then. It takes the the wisdom and the tact of Abigail to prevent him taking things into his own hands. Mm -hmm. And so you see a totally different reaction here. Yeah, where that's not he's not just reacting to the moment, but he is strengthening himself, you know, with with the right one and seeking, you know, the answer from the right one. That's true. You know, you see that that moment of growth, and that's so significant because we see time and time again from this point on, the kings of Israel, a lot of them don't grow ever, right? They lock themselves into these positions, and then they just sit there, and they stay there, and they don't ever learn from their mistakes, and you see that in Saul. David has had that moment where he's been rebuked in a very similar situation because he made the wrong choice, and so here he's learned from that. And he puts it into action, right? And that's, that's very valuable to us as Christians because often that's what happens in our lives, right? You made the wrong decision. There were consequences. What you're supposed to do is learn from those consequences, learn from making that bad decision, and then make the correct one when that thing comes up again, right? And that's kind of our struggle in life is a lot of the same issues, a lot of the same things come up in our lives we have to keep fighting against it, right? We have to keep fighting back against it and, and making the right decision instead, right? Learning from our mistakes and growing from them and putting that into practice. And that's hard. But that's, you know, what, what makes a di- that's what's different between David and, you know, Saul, right? And that's, that's what's different between us and the world is we can make those changes, we can make those, uh, those different decisions that lead us down a better path, right? Lead us down the path that God would want us to go down. And it is never the wrong decision to inquire of the Lord, right? When you have an open heart, you're willing to listen, it's never the wrong decision. Yes, Leah. I just wanted to say, you know, David was considered a man after God's own heart. So David had this tender, loving heart. And a lot of times when we fall away or we do something bad, we think God doesn't
It's true. Yeah. David was very <clears throat> humble in that when he was faced with uh, mistakes that he made, he was willing to make that change and admit those mistakes. That's true. Um, any other comments? So David inquires of the Lord, shall I overtake them? And the Lord says, yes, pursue them. You will overtake them and you will rescue all. And so David goes, he and his 600 men. Wait a second. These guys wanted to kill him. Yeah, well, David changed their mind, right? Inquire of the Lord. We're going to get everything back. We go. And so they just go. 600 men go, but they get to uh, the brook Bezor and 200 stay. Why do these 200 men stay? I can't do it anymore, right? They're, they're done. They, they have gone as far as they can go. And so they're too tired. They stay at, at uh, the brook there and the rest, David and the 400 rest, pursue on. And in verse 11, they find an Egyptian. They find an Egyptian and they uh, give him food. They treat, uh, you know, they treat him well and they ask for information. You know, who are you? Where are you from? He says, I'm a, I'm a, I was a servant. I was a slave of the Amalekites. We went in, we raided, and we burned the city Ziklag, and they left me because I was sick. Right? They didn't think I would make it, so they left me. I'm not dead yet. They left me. I was sick. And... Uh, and so here I am. And David says, okay, if you take me to them, you know, will you take me to them? And he says, yeah, if you keep me alive and don't give me back. <laughs> right? So, okay, that's a deal. We can do that. And so the Egyptian leads them to the Amalekites. And in verse uh, 15, or excuse me, verse 16, he brings them down. And what are the Amalekites doing? They're having a party, right? They are, verse 16, brought him down. Behold, they were spread all over the land, right? They're not worried about a battle. They're spread out all over the land. They're eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil that they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. I find it interesting how, uh, I don't know, there's something about verse 17 that the simplicity of it just adds an extra layer of, I don't know, finality to me. David slaughtered them from twilight until evening of the next day. Right? Okay, we're having a party. Great big party. Everyone's dancing, feasting, everything. David slaughters them all until the evening of the next day. I mean, that's kind of grabs your attention, maybe. I don't know. It does me anyway, right? You're having a big party. Woo! David comes in. You're done. No more party. You're all dead. Right? Except for 400, which escaped on camels, right? Get on the camels and you ride. Um, I don't know that that would be a very pleasant ride, right? running away on a camel. But you're faster than the people on foot, right? So get on the 400 camels, 400 people escape. You don't have a camel, you're dead. And so they're slaughtered, right? Uh, you know, David pretty much you know, enacting the judgment that the Lord was going to put on the Amalekites when Saul was supposed to do it, right? Saul was supposed to annihilate the Amalekites. He didn't do it. David comes in, slaughters everybody, doesn't ask any questions, right? Shows up, they're all dead. If they can be caught, they're not on a camel. Um, and what does David get from that? I mean, they recover everything, right? They recover their, their people, right? Their families, they recover their stuff. 
they get all the rest of the spoil that they had, had taken, right? And so, you know, uh, to the victor go the spoils. Yes, that happens in this case, right? They take all the spoil and they go back, right? They're headed back to Ziklag. And then on the way back, they come back to the brook and they meet the other 200 men. And what happens when they meet these other 200 men? Yeah, whoa, 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 wait a second. You're giving them all of our stuff. We're the ones who fought, right? We're the ones who fought and took all the risk and did all this stuff. Let's just give them back their family. And then we keep everything and they get nothing. But uh, it mentions the quality of these individuals, right? The, the wicked and the worthless men among those who went with David, right? The wicked and the worthless are the ones who say, you know, this is what we need to do. Very... You know, let's remember back when Saul was first anointed king. He had some individuals that tried to do this, too. Right. It was it was similar in a way. Right. He had some wicked individuals, some worthless individuals that after a great victory that the Lord gave them, they wanted to go back and kill all the people who weren't supporting Saul. Right. Let's just go back and we'll kill everybody who's not supporting you, Saul. And at that time, Saul said, no. Right? No, we won't do that. Why? The victory is the Lord's, right? The victory is the Lord's. We're not going to slaughter the people that aren't supporting me just because we had a victory. We're, we're, the victory is the Lord's. We're not going to do that. These men come back with all their spoil with David, and they see the 200 that stayed behind because they were too exhausted to continue. And they say, you can't have what we earned, right? And what does David say? Yeah, we didn't earn it. The Lord gave it to us. And yes, they will share in the, in the bounty, right, from the Lord. And so I think it's interesting here. David, uh, verse 23, you must not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. Who has kept us and delivered into our hand the band that came against us? And who will listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down to the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. Verse 25, so it has been from that day forward that he made it a statute and an ordinance for Israel to this day. I think there's an important point to see here. You now have David as a leader impacting the morals of the men following him with statutes, right? Uh, that's different than what we've seen up to this point. Because up to this point, we've had judges, right? Judges, and what are the people doing? Whatever they want, right? And Saul, okay, Saul's a leader, and Saul's ruling, but is Saul instituting moral, uh, you know, any moral regulations or statutes, really? I, I mean, not that we see, right? We, we do know he enforces the, uh, you know, the killing of the witches and the mediums, right? He does do that. Because uh, otherwise, the witch of Endor wouldn't be too scared of him. But, you know, we don't see too much of that in Saul. But here, David is making it a law, right? You will do the right thing by the Lord, right? The victory that the Lord has given us, the spoil that the Lord has given us, we will share that among our brethren, as is right, and it will be a law. And it's a law that's continued on through the kingdom, right? Throughout the kingdom. I think that's an interesting distinction to make between Saul and David, between the other leaders that you've seen in Israel and 
men like David, men like Joshua, right? Men like Moses. Joshua and Moses, what did they constantly have to do with the people of Israel? They constantly had to grab them and drag them down the right path and say, you will do this, right? That's what made the job so hard, right? It's kind of what makes it so difficult for Moses to talk to Joshua and say, okay, this is what you're going to have to do, right? It's going to be tough. It's going to be tough. And the Lord comes to Joshua and says, it's going to be tough, Be strong and courageous, right? You're going to have to grab these people and you're going to have to drag them down the right way. But if you do that, what's the outcome? Right. I mean, you look at Joshua and the children of Israel. Joshua had such an impact on them that... They, they remained faithful while he was alive and while the leaders that were alive when he was alive were alive, right? He had a big influence on them. It wasn't everlasting, but it was a big influence, right? David is going to have a big influence on the children of Israel. And it's because he has this kind of a character that he's more concerned with what the Lord wants and what is right than with his own aspirations, his own desires, his own like, you know, he could take these funds and he could, all right, let's put them to use, right? Okay, we'll keep it all. You're right. Let's do that. You know, I'll, I'll give it to the people who, who like me the most, who can benefit me the most. I'll, I'll be like Saul and I'll play the politics game. I'll grab all the good people for me and myself. No, David doesn't do that, right? No, we're going to share it with everybody. And so the men that are with the baggage, they get their share, right? The 200 men there, they get their share. They also get all their stuff back that was taken from them originally, right? And not only that, but then David comes to Ziklag, and what does he do with, the rest, with some of the rest of the spoil? Keep sharing it, right? Okay, we come back, we get all this extra. We have all of our stuff, but we have all this extra. What are we going to do with that? Well, everywhere we've been, we're going to share that with all of our brethren, right? We're going to share that with all those individuals. He puts it into practice himself, right? David could have kept this. Brother Kerry. Mitch, you may be getting to this, so I may be jumping ahead, but I couldn't help but think about Acts 4, 32, where, um, number one, going back to 1 Samuel, they recognized that God was the giver. Of, of these things, not themselves. And that attitude is um, brought forth in Acts 4.32, um, where, you know, nothing belonged to them, but all things were common property to them, and they were willing to share, talking about the brethren in Jerusalem. Right. It's, it's such a contrast to the people in the world, right? You, you, if you're in the world... Your security is in your stuff and the things that you have, right? That's where your security is because you are in the world. You're part of the world. Your thinking is affected by that. If you are spiritually minded, if you're concerned about spiritual things, then your security and your peace is in the Lord and you understand where all those things come from. You understand what true blessings you can have and where the benefit lies in sharing that with others, right? Yeah, you're right. That, uh, the idea of the Lord is the giver of all these things. Um, and that's so important for us because when we start hoarding things, when we start, you know, closing down our contributions, our hospitality to others, that has an impact on us, right? That has an impact on our souls. 
It affects our mindset. It affects our judgment. It affects the decisions that we make. Because once you start making those decisions, it, it ends up becoming a habit. It ends up having a wider influence than you might think. Right? So that's kind of what's happening with David. Any other comments on chapter 30? Yes. I thought it was interesting when you, when you talk about, yes, he shared the spoils, but at the end, at the end of verse 22, and he says, or when they, when they say, um, because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered. But the other part, he says, except for every man's wife and children, that they may lead them away and depart. It wasn't just, we're not going to give them the spoils, but like they take their stuff and go. And one of the things that as David, as a leader that he shows is that he said, no, they did their part. They stayed back and they protected and I think that's a really interesting point for today, like not just because all the, you know there's going to be people who are out and up front of, of others, but there's a lot of people who who are not in that in that role. But David, as a leader, got a lot of respect from the people because he recognized that everybody has their part to play. And so you know I think that went a long way with those people who stayed um, and, and probably gave him a lot of capital later. It's true, you you know. That's a, a leadership quality you don't see in Saul, right? Saul was kind of very similar as these wicked-minded individuals. If you have value and import and some kind of strength, then I want you on my side. If you don't, then, yeah, go back home and farm. You know, it's whatever. But, you know, what is the value in having a large army and not having any crops to feed it, right? There's no value in that. And so David sees the value in all these different pieces working together. When everybody does their part, everybody does their share, everything works the way it's supposed to, and you know, all the roles are fulfilled, and you need all of those roles to be fulfilled uh, to have, have the best outcome. Yes, Leanne. Um, uh, uh, David even gave to, um, it says somewhere in, in the latter verses, that gave, David didn't only give to the people that were on his side, but he also gave to his enemies as well. He gave to everybody. Who he could, and um, they couldn't understand that. But you know, it kind of goes back to how um, God blesses us, and God blesses everybody in the world the same way. And we're thinking, well, we're doing the right thing. We, we should, we deserve our blessings. But that person, he's living a sin, and he shouldn't have the same blessing as I do. But that's not the way. David was, and that's not the way God is. It's true, yeah. The, the Lord's blessings rain down on the wicked and the just, right? Any other comments? Okay, so our question number two. Who was killed in the battle with the Philistines? This brings us into chapter 31. Saul? Who specifically of his sons, though? Jonathan? Uh, yeah, Jonathan, uh, Abinadab, and Malkishua, the sons of Saul. Uh, notably, there's one son that's missing in this list. Um, and uh, Leland will probably talk about that later when he goes through uh, David. He'll come back up, so just noting that for him. Uh, you know, put a pin in it, we'll come back later. Um, but Jonathan and Abinadab and Malkishua are killed and... Then you have, you know, the battle is going against Saul. The archers wound him. He's badly wounded. He says to his armor bearer, draw your sword. 
pierce me through with it. Otherwise, the uncircumcised will kill me. Uh, the armor bearer refuses because he's afraid. Uh, I don't want to do that. And so Saul falls on his own sword. The armor bearer does the same. And, uh, and you know, thus is the end of Saul. In, chap- in 2 Samuel chapter 1, we find out a bit more information about Saul's death. There's an Amalekite who comes and gives more information on that. But I'm not going to spoil that for Leland. So I'll let him cover that. But that's what's revealed here, right? Saul falls on his sword, and his armor bearer does the same, and all of his men perish. Is that fair that Jonathan is killed along with his father? Right? We know why Saul is killed in this instance, right? It's revealed to us uh, in 1 Chronicles chapter 10. He's killed here because... He, did, he didn't follow the Lord's command. He didn't utterly destroy the Amalekites, right? He refused to do the Lord's command. So the Lord rejected him, right? He rejected the Lord. The Lord rejected him. But also, he inquired of a medium instead of inquiring of the Lord, right? That was the second reason given in First Chronicles 10. What's Jonathan's involvement in that, that he gets caught up in this? He's the heir. He's the heir, Sure. But did Jonathan himself do anything? No, No, right? From everything we know about Jonathan, Jonathan was a a devout, God-fearing individual who, before this, we talked about, meets David and says, look, my father knows you're going to get the kingdom, and then I'll be your second in command, right? And we'll rule together, and we'll get it, you know, get the job done. We talked about during that class that, you know, Jonathan didn't know what was going to happen. That was just wishful thinking on his part, right? Hopeful thinking, maybe. What does this point out to us? Right. There are consequences for your actions, and those consequences are not something that you face in a vacuum on your own. Right? When you sin, it has an impact, and that impact can affect you, it can affect your loved ones, it can affect your enemies. It can affect people around you that you don't even know very well. It can affect people that you don't know at all, right? But sin has consequences, and there is collateral damage all around you, right? And so again, we bring up this point, the idea in the world of, well, this individual just needs to sow their wild oats, and then they'll figure it out, right? They'll, they just need to make their mistakes, and they'll learn from it. That is foolishness, right? Because those mistakes have an impact. Those mistakes have consequences. And are you really saying that you want your loved ones, right, your children, your family members, whoever it may be, your friends, to go through life-changing, life-damaging consequences just to learn something that they should be able to just learn by, I don't know, studying the Bible, right? Safer way to go through it. But that's not how the world works, right? That's not what the world does. The world says, oh, no, you just got to figure it out on your own. And that's foolishness, right? We know that's foolishness. But you also see that as a practical example here in 1 Samuel 31. Saul's sons are collateral damage for his own decisions and his own foolishness, right? What else do I see here? Well, 
Does Saul not know that this is going to happen? I mean, he, he was told, right, by Samuel with the witch of Endor, right? The, the witch of Endor brings up Samuel. Ah! Right? Oops. Um, and, and is told by Samuel, you will die in this battle, right? You will be with me in this battle. Yes, Brother Bruce. All of these things take me back to uh, Luke 16, when Abraham told the rich man uh, who asked to send someone from the dead back, and he said, no, uh, they won't listen to him. Well, here's an example. Saul didn't listen. Saul had no remorse, even though Samuel told him exactly why he was in jeopardy with, with God and exactly what would happen. Uh, there's no record of him either showing remorse or attempting to repent of those things to change the outcome. The outcome, uh, the outcome came. Yeah. <laughs> That's a difficult sentence. Uh, but it, it just, again, a verification of both Old Testament and New Testament teaching. Uh, Saul had, had, uh, had his chances uh, and as a result of uh, not listening to someone from the dead, uh, he was lost, just like those who, who witnessed Lazarus coming back from the dead. Uh, the Pharisees never changed. Yeah. It's true. You know, you know I, I think about Ananias and Sapphira. How many chances did Ananias and Sapphira get to repent? I mean, they got the one, right? They were asked, you know, you know, what did you do? They were asked. They got the one. They didn't take it. What happened? Killed. Is that fair? Yes, right? They were given a chance. They were given the one chance. Is it fair that, you know, Saul is punished here after how long did Saul have to repent of what he had done? I mean, years and years and decades, right? Decades to repent of what he had done and to change. And to Bruce's point, yeah, he was told here, you will die. He, what did he do? He went into the battle and he died, right? Did he repent? Did he try and change? Did he try and, you know, no, right? No. I think that kind of also goes to the point of, you know, Saul is killed here in First Chronicles. Again, we're told that part of that is inquiring of the witch of Endor and not inquiring of the Lord. Did Saul inquire of the Lord? Uh, yeah, we say, you know, we see that, yeah, he looked, or he, he asked, Lord, you know, someone inqu we inquire of the Lord, what's going to happen in this battle? The Lord didn't answer. And to bring up Dan's point from last week, did he inquire with a, really, a real willingness to listen to the law of the Lord? No, he didn't, right? Because he didn't get an answer, right? There is no answer for those that aren't going to listen to the word of the Lord, you know, what would be the point? You know, I, he did get an answer because Samuel came back and told him, right? But he wasn't asking with faith. He wasn't asking with belief. Sure, he, he went through the motions, but that's the same thing as, you know, was discussed last week of using prayer to the Lord as some kind of 911 emergency helpline and, and expecting the Lord to do this thing for you and, and you've done nothing. You've shown no faithfulness. You've shown no, you know, 
uh, unselfishness, you've shown no humility, you've shown no, nothing, right? No repentance, no remorse, no nothing. And yet you want this thing so badly, right? Lord, if you give this to me, I'll just... No, the Lord isn't a bargaining chip, right? He's not, I don't know, Craigslist, right? You can't... Let's make an exchange. No, that's not how it works, right? Yes, Brother Steve. He turned 180 degrees to the dark side to try to get this witch to conjure up, you know, and do that thing. And, and so, to me, that showed just how off he was, even though it seemed like he wanted an answer from God, he, he just wanted an answer. Yeah. And I think he was really looking for the answer that he wanted. Yeah, and, and again, that goes back to, you know, his paranoia, his self-delusion. Um, it, uh, I was, I don't know, brought to this passage in, in Hosea. Um, Hosea chapter 10, verse 12 says, So with a view to righteousness, reap in accordance with kindness, Break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord until he comes to rain righteousness on you. You have plowed wickedness, you have reaped injustice, you have eaten the fruit of lies, because you have trusted in your way in your numerous warriors. Right? And I feel like that, that kind of sums up Saul in a lot of ways. Right? He deluded himself to a point where, yeah, he was going to reap the benefits of that. Right? He, he was going to believe all of the lies that he'd been telling himself about David, about... You know, how David was always against him, was trying to undermine his rule, was trying to steal all this stuff from him. And he bought into that delusion and he reaped the consequences of it, right? The problem is, I don't believe that Saul was 100% evil, right? Some people say, oh, Saul was 100% evil, right? He killed the priests, he did this stuff. Well, he also killed the witches, and the mediums, right? He also fought against the enemies of the Lord, the Amalekites, the Philistines. The Lord used him to remove these enemies from Israel. But that doesn't mean he was 100% good either, right? And that's, that's the thing. You can be right in some things and yet be so far off the path you don't even see it. Right? Saul had one wife. That's what the kings were supposed to have. One wife, right? As far as I know, he's the only one that did that. But yet, you know, we don't consider him to be righteous. And it's because he's not, right? Just because you did this one thing faithfully and then forsook the whole rest of the law, that doesn't make you righteous, right? It doesn't matter how dogmatic and faithful you've been in this one thing. That's one thing. You've got to keep the whole law. And that's a danger for us because we can be right in a lot of ways and still be headed to hell, right? Because of one thing or these couple things that we let influence our lives, that we let make, uh, you know, allow, you know, influence us to make bad decisions, to make sinful decisions. And we just say, well, but that's okay because all these other good things I do. Uh, no, right? It's not a bargain. We don't get to make a bargain. Right? Lord, you get 93% of my life, and then this other seven, no, that's not how it works. He was guilty of one part of the law, he's guilty of the whole. Right. Right. And, and that is what is so interesting to me about Saul as a character. I see 
you know, you see mankind in Saul in a lot of ways because that's what people do. You can start out good, right? He started out good. You know, we, we made a good decision. Victory is the Lord's. Okay, yes, it is. And then what happens after that? Well, somebody came and said, that, you know, I didn't do it exactly right. I messed up a little bit, but it should have been okay because I mostly followed the, the rules. And then from that point on, it's just deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper down that road until he's so far away from it, he doesn't see, you know, the, the, you know, the horrendous actions that he's doing, right? He doesn't understand, oh, I just killed all these 85 priests, you know, for my own reasons, right? Oh, I just went to a witch and had her summon a medium, which is condemned in the law, but I'm going to do that anyway just because I'm not getting the answer, right? He doesn't see that. And it's because he's made those little decisions, you know, over and over and over again that have led him down that path, that have deluded him, right? And he's reaping that fruit of those lies, right? How often did Saul tell himself, it's okay. I'm not that bad. I haven't done that bad. I don't know. I don't know. But I know I've been that person that has told myself that. Well, you know, okay, I did that, but that wasn't that bad. No, that's wrong. Right? That's the wrong way of thinking. And we have to see that. We have to be individuals like David, right? who's the, the counterexample. Right? David. Horrible situation happens. Do we give up in despair? No. We inquire of the Lord. Right? What if the Lord had said, no, don't pursue them? I don't know. But I think David probably would have listened. Right? Because if that's the will of the Lord, what we've seen from David's example this, so far, he would follow. Yes, Brother John. One major problem, and all the others, I think, stemmed from it, and that was he never developed the respect for God that he should have. What it, uh, Isaiah chapter 66, 1 and 2, God said, here's the one I will see to, the one who is humble and contrite of heart and who trembles at my word. You really respect God. and his, uh, Saul kind of took God's word loosely. He was loose with what God, you know, he kind of was in the ballpark maybe, but not really close. And that showed it in all the other, you know, David was the opposite. That's why David, his respect for God is why he wouldn't kill Saul. It wasn't because of Saul, it was because of his respect for God. So that was the difference in the heart of David and the heart of Saul. Next week we'll have a review. And then that'll be it for the quarter, and you will be done with me and move on with Leland into talking more about David, King David. Thank you.